there and welcome. This is Amanda, the founder of Astrology Hub, and you're listening to our week ahead snapshot with world-class astrologer, historian, and author of the Cosmic Calendar, Christopher Renstrom. This show is designed to give you a quick overview of the week ahead, enabling you the gift of choice in how you navigate and weave these energies into your daily life. Enjoy. Hello. My name is Christopher Renstrom, and I'm your weekly horoscope columnist here on Astrology Hub. And this week, this week I wanted to talk to you about the Venus-Pluto trine taking place on September 26th. Venus, in mythology, was regarded as an extremely powerful planet. Nowadays in astrology, we tend to treat her more as sort of a planet that talks about our tastes or our aesthetics, the things that we like in people. You know, a planet that's very sort of charming and seductive and playful and sort of uh, rules over romantic trysts in a sort of light and fluttery way. But Venus, Venus back in the day was seen as a much more powerful force than that. Venus and Mars were both linked, but not because they were complementary planets with one another or complementary deities. They were linked because they were just as powerful, just as forceful, and just as passionate, but in two entirely different ways. One of the ways that I would like to show you by example is the story of eyes, okay? It's it's the idea of, of, of catching someone's glance, of meeting someone's glance with your own eyes. Now, in a Marsy way, if uh, someone stares at you and you stare back at that person and you stare for a long time, this is seen as communicating a challenge. It's like when two dogs stare at one another in the dog park. You know, one dog stares at the other and it like holds its gaze. And then in the next moment, they're barking and growling and leaping at one another. Okay, so to meet someone's stare and to not look away is seen basically as a challenge. And that still pretty much holds true to to this day. With Venus, with Venus, it was all about the eyes. In fact, meeting someone's gaze from a Venusian point of view could be very dangerous, but not in the Mars way that I just communicated to you. We are used to the idea of Cupid, you know, Cupid, the little pootie, the little angel with the wings, you know, that wears a blindfold and fires arrows of love into the hearts of people. Okay, Cupid was seen, um, particularly in the medieval and the Renaissance period, as being the consort of Aphrodite. Um, Aphrodite was the goddess of love, and Cupid, the little sort of cute pootie, went and fired arrows into people's hearts, and they, like, fell in love. Okay, so this is sort Sort of a later representation uh, that you see a lot in art of Aphrodite and 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 Cupid, uh, who we also know as Eros. Um, but in the earlier period, in the Greek period, the idea was that Aphrodite herself 
fired the arrows of love. And indeed, in many early uh, paintings and depictions, you see Aphrodite sort of carrying uh, an arrow or even a spear in some instances, and a and, and a heart that is aflame in passion and in love. So this idea is that if someone's eyes met your glance, okay, what could happen is that arrows, uh, uh, this is where we get the phrase darting glances, okay, that arrows could be fired from the eyes of one person and into the eyes of another, okay? And these could be the arrows of Aphrodite. And if this is indeed what happened, where someone glanced at another person and it just, and it wasn't exclusive to a man and a woman, it could be women and women, men and men. I mean, uh, everything was open game back in Greek society. Um, if you met someone's glance, arrows of love could be fired from that person's eyes. They were seen as invisible arrows and they would soar through the air and they would meet the recipient's eyes and they would travel down through the blood system to the heart where the arrows would pierce the heart and infect it. It would infect it with a love sickness. Now, we've talked a little bit about love sickness before on these podcasts, the idea of infatuation and of, of fascination and of being transported into a wonderful ecstasy. But there was a darker side to this as well, a darker side, which I thought was appropriate to talk about considering that Venus will be making one of her last trines to Pluto on September 26th. So this idea of the infected heart, this idea of lovesickness, it's actually something that we take pretty seriously today as well. I mean, we'll talk about obsessions or stalkers, or or we'll talk about codependency, um, you know, things and ways in which we sacrifice our li life for, for to win the love of someone near us, you know, and so there are those, or or to win the love of someone who has, who has rejected us, um, you know, so, so we're very familiar with, with the darker flavors of that uh, today. But back in ancient Greece, they had a little bit of a different take on it. Okay, this idea of heart sickness, of love sickness, and they actually saw love sickness as being a real physical disease. One of the first stories where it shows up is a story that's told to us by the Greek physician Galen. Uh, you may know Galen because he's the one who popularizes the whole idea of the Hippocratic oath of 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 um you know that 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 you should do no harm in the medicine that you that you practice well galen was a very famous greek physician who did a lot of traveling uh back in the day um and collected a lot of the uh pharmaceutical remedies and stories from different and uh, neighboring countries to ancient greece so this is a story that's told by the Greek physician Galen um, about the first century BC king, King Seleucus. Now, King Seleucus was an old older man. He was an older uh, man. He had had a wife before and he had uh, married again. And he married a beautiful woman named Stratonice. Uh, Stratonice was much younger than him. And if you remember in terms of Greek marriage, um, oftentimes Greek men married much younger women. I mean, 
women who are barely women. I mean, usually uh, young girls, we would really say nowadays, around the ages of 15 or 16, 17 or 18, uh, would be given as wives to men who could be uh, in their late 20s or 30s. That was kind of like the average time of marriage. And in the case of Seleucus, he's older than that as well, because he has a grown son. So um, King Seleucus has this beautiful wife, uh, Stratonice, uh, who is much younger than him. Um, and whom he has married. Um, but the king also has a son named Antiochus. Um, and Antiochus is basically around Stratonice's age. And Antiochus, uh, who is the prince of the realm, he's the king's uh, son, he will be the inheritor of the realm. He looks upon Stratonice one day, and she glances up at him, and arrows fly through the air, and they enter into the eyes of Antiochus, and they go and they infect his heart, and he breathes a heavy sigh. You know, he looks at her and he just is full of love for her. But this isn't a sort of ecstasy like we discussed with Dante. This is a love sickness. This he he immediately feels weakened, weak, weak at the knees, we still refer to as. And he is so weak at the knees, and he turns so pale that he immediately retreats to his bed. Okay, he immediately retreats to his bed and he becomes seriously ill where he does not leave his bed for days, and soon he does not leave his bed for weeks. Now, what he's feeling is this love for his stepmother, Stratonice, and what he's also feeling with this love is an incredible shame. Um, how could he have feelings for his father's um, uh, uh, new wife, his stepmother. This is this is shameful. This is taboo. This is awful. And so he will not admit it. He will not confess his feelings. He will not say what is going on. Um, and and people become concerned. Nurses become concerned. His friends become concerned. Palace staff become concerned about the prince Antiochus and how he will not leave his bed and how every day his eyes are becoming uh, more sunken. Uh, his skin is becoming more pale. He will not eat food. He will not drink water. Um, and, and, and he is becoming deathly ill. And so the doctor... Arisostratus, Arisostratus, the doctor, um, Arisostratus is called to um, Antiochus' side. He's called into his bedchamber, and um, he's he he tries to diagnose these things, and and he he, he doesn't think it's poison. He doesn't think um, it's 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 an illness of the lungs or or the blood or anything along these lines, and and he's completely perplexed as to what has stricken this prince, and so. Uh, uh, Prince Antiochus's father, Seleucus, is also very worried, and he comes to his son's bedside, and, and he asks him what's wrong, and his son will not respond. His son will not respond. And so everyone is at a complete loss as to what the mystery is of, of the prince's illness until uh, Stratonice um, enters. And she enters just to sort of, you know, look after her husband and to see what is up with Antiochus. And at that moment, uh, the doctor Aristratus is holding uh, the, the prince's wrist. He's taking his pulse. And he notices that the moment that Stratonice enters, just to sort of peer, just to be inquisitive, just to sort of see out of concern what's going on, the prince's pulse 
begins to 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 beat and it begins to beat very quickly very fast he has shortness of breath uh, there's a flush in his cheek there's excitement in his eyes as he strains as he as he sort of like pushes himself out of the bed to look at Stradonis to sort of meet her gaze and she very shyly you know turns away um and she departs the room and he falls back he falls back into the pillows uh even more exhausted, even more uh, drawn than he was before, and even more pale. And it's at that moment uh, with the beating pulse and then the pulse stops beating and the prince's collapse back into his pillows and, 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 and the disappearance of the flesh from his cheeks that the uh, physician Aristratus realizes that the prince is in love with his stepmother. Now, as you can imagine, this is a bit of an awkward situation. Um, the prince is in love with his uh, stepmother. Uh, he had met her gaze. Arrows had been fired without the stepmother really knowing this, and they had infected his heart, and he's full of this love and this passion. Um, and But the more that the more that this love is unrequited, unrecognized, the prince will not confess his feelings, um, the more that it is eating him inside out, that it is stealing his life force, that he is languishing, that he is wasting away, that he is dying. And so if the prince dies, then the bind that King Seleucus is in is that there will be no inheritor to his realm. There will be no one to take it over. His only uh, heir is this is 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 his prince Antiochus. And so the physician tells King Seleucus, he tells King Seleucus, I, I, I believe I understand what your son is suffering from. And the king is like, well, what is he suffering from? Please, please tell me, is it something that's curable? Is it something that you can heal him from? And, and the physician says, well, it's actually something that you can cure King Seleucus. It's something that you can heal him from. You are the remedy. And he's like, I'm the remedy. I'm the remedy. How am I the remedy? How can I heal my son? Please, please, please tell me. And so um, the physician Aristratos uh, says to the king, um, your son Antiochus is in love with his stepmother. Your son Antiochus is in love with your wife. Um, this is the basis of, 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 of why he is so ill. He is lovesick. And King Seleucus is like, he's, he's lovesick. He's in love with my wife, Stradonis. He's lovesick. Oh my goodness, I never saw that coming. I, I, I don't know what to do. And so the physician says to him, the physician says to him, let me ask you something. How much are you in love with Stradonis? How much do you love her? And the king's like, well, she's my wife. Yes, she's your wife. And, and, and she is bound to you through marriage. But how much do you truly love her? And he's like, well, I love my son more. I mean, if my son is ill, I love him more. That's the person that I'm really concerned about with here. That's the person I truly love. What can I do to remedy him? And so the physician says, 
what you could do to remedy him would be to divorce Stratonice um, and to give her hand in marriage to Antiochus, to give her hand in marriage to your son. Do you think that you could make that kind of sacrifice? And so Seleucus says, well, this, this is this is serious, right? And he's and the physician says, "Yes, uh, Antiochus, this is life or death. Uh, only she can 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 really release him from this." And he's like, "Well, and she's not going to release him from this uh, if she's married to me, uh, because that sets up a situation that's not good." So, yes, yes, I will speak to her tonight, and I will divorce her, but I will tell her why I am divorcing her so she can make this decision clearly of her own heart and clearly of her own mind. And so he tells Stratonice that night and and that he will divorce her. Um, The reason that he wants to divorce her, that the person who truly in love with her is Antiochus, and Stratonice only at that moment confesses that she has feelings for him too, but didn't want to say anything. And so Seleucus says, oh, please, please become his wife. You're the same age. You should never have been my wife. This is, this is ridiculous. I'll go ahead and pass down my rulership to him, become his wife, become his queen. I release you from this bond. And she's like, really? And he says, yes, yes, I release you from this. And so she goes and she goes to the chamber of Antiochus where he's ill. And she tells Antiochus all of this. And Antiochus is troubled about his father, but he also feels his heart and he's so in love with her. And following the divorce, and the announcement that she has these feelings towards him too. He immediately regains his health. He he becomes king of the land. And uh, the two of them have a wonderful marriage and they have a wonderful uh, rulership. Everything turns out for the best. Now, the reason I tell you this story, the reason I tell you this story is that we're shown a predicament, a love predicament. Um, and these sorts of romantic predicaments, whether it's a trying to Pluto or a square to Pluto or an opposition to Pluto, even a conjunction to Pluto, these sorts of predicaments where there's a sort of life or death quality involving um, Venus involving love, these are the sorts of things that will come out. And here in the story of, of, of this trine, this understanding, the king has to make a very, uh, the king has to make a substantial sacrifice. He has to make a substantial sacrifice to save the life of his son. But he also makes a sacrifice based really truly on whom he loves more. You know, even though he is married to um, Stradonis, he loves his son more. And so for out of his love for his son, he agrees to the divorce. She is free uh, to express her feelings that that she truly did have towards him. And he's free to express the feelings that he has towards her. And this all ends well. The reason I underscore this is because what was talked about in this story and what was talked about, particularly in the medieval period where romantic love becomes such a big deal, um, is that there is an obligation for the people who are not in love, okay, if they are, for instance, drawn up in this love triangle, um, there is an obligation on the part of the people who are not in love to release the lover's from an obligation. Uh, 
to release them from that obligation, to step down, as it were, in order to ensure that basically true love uh, saves the day. But love was connected to your vital spirit. Love was connected to your life. If you fell in love, if you suffered from love sickness, you were bound to the person who quite honestly, more often than not, unknowingly, okay, looked in the direction and the arrows flew. The person may have had feelings, but wasn't going to confess them or talk about them. The person unwittingly, just by looking, sends these arrows of love. And so it is then the person who has sent those arrows, who's under obligation to either consummate the match or to release the match. Now here, Stradonis cannot consummate the match or release the match because she is under obligation to her husband. Only her husband can remove that obligation, and so he does. And this is the sort of thing that, you know, when you start to apply it to things like love triangles, to extramarital affairs or situations that involve a spouse and a lover in some way, there is an obligation. It still stands to this day that if the spouses are not in love, you know, um, if, if, if they are not, you know, in that place of love, then there is an obligation to one of the spouses to release the other spouse from that obligation. This was the understanding of courtly love. This was the understanding of Venus. Because if you do not, if you do not release that person from the obligation, then bad things will happen. Bad things will very much happen. Um, nowadays, we experience it with like the costs of divorce and the heartbreak and the breakup of families and all these sorts of things. Uh, Venus has that kind of power. You know, Amor has that kind of power, um, but she will not unleash it, okay, if the lovers respect Okay, the the what is going on in terms of the Venusian understanding of things. And that's a very tall order. That's a very tall order. What if you're the spouse who, you know, believed that your marriage was fine and then you discover that it's not? You know, you're angry, you're hurt, you want to take it out on the spouse, or maybe you believed in your marriage and you find out that that your spouse didn't and you're sickened by by all that 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 happens well according to the rules of venus in an astrological chart there is still an insistence a planetary insistence that if the marriage or the union or the relationship cannot be salvaged then it is up to the other one to release that person from the obligation. This is an understanding. This is a Venusian understanding. I'm going to tell you a darker version of the story. Um, Venus, again, in Greek mythology, is the goddess who can infect a heart with love and passion, okay, that you will do crazy things for love. And she was seen as powerful she was seen as more powerful than Mars, the god of war, okay? Because, uh, you know, if she has infected your heart with a passion and a love, she did this with mortals, and she did this with gods all the time. Zeus always blamed Venus for his, you know, uh, 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 
amorous adventures, you know, and Hera was like, I'm not buying it. I think you're behind it. But Zeus was like, no, no, she infected my heart. That's why I had to sleep with these various nymphs and maidens and, and people like that. And Hera was like, yeah, yeah, you know, talk to the palm. I'm not believing any moment of it. But anyway, that's another story for another time. But even the gods themselves and the goddesses themselves could be infected by the love passions of, of Venus. Okay, this is how powerful she is. And her connection to Eros, of course, takes her to one of the four fundamental forces that exist in the universe before the creation of the world as we know it. So Venus is a much more powerful goddess than we uh, really sort of understand or even appreciate. And so Venus demanded that people love Okay. Um, and, and that sounds kind of like, well, that sounds kind of nice, demands that people love, you know, that sort of like sounds nice, but she demanded that people love and that people who uh, 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 rejected love or turned their back on love, these were these were people that she really, you know, had their eyes on, okay? Um, and also remember, when I say that Venus is more powerful than Mars, the greatest war that we know of in history is the Trojan War. Why does the Trojan War take place? It takes place because of love. Uh, Venus had promised uh, Helen, the most beautiful woman in the world, to Paris when he awarded her the golden apple. So, you know, Helen, whose face launched a thousand ships, you know, it's over love that that people, you know, fight this very long and 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 barbarous war. Okay, so so it can be the love of someone or it can be the coveting of something. Coveting is ruled by Venus. Um, uh, in fact, the word cupidity, which comes which comes from Cupid, means to covet. Okay, to to covet someone's belongings. Uh, covet, coveting has two commandments in the Ten Commandments: Thou shalt not cover, covet thy neighbor's things, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. So the idea of coveting also comes from Venus. Okay, so and and then when it begins to mix its energy with Pluto, which can be under the world, uh, which is named after the god of the underworld, it can be under the surface. It can rule over those impulses that we sort of like hide or keep down, you know, Antiochus has feelings for his stepmother, you know, it's very Plutonian, but he keeps those feelings down. But in keeping those feelings down, he wastes away. There are these extraordinary dilemmas that are brought up by the planets um, in their different interactions with one another. The next uh, story I just want to share with you quickly is the story of Phaedra. Phaedra, um, was the second wife of Theseus. His first wife was Hippolyta, who was the queen of the Amazons, uh, whom he had captured and forced into marriage. Amazons, if you remember, refuse to have anything to do with men. They are a warring society of women. Um, and when they needed to reproduce, they would go and capture men um, and, 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 and enslave them and make them, you know, sleep with them. And then afterwards, they would dispose of them, you know, like a a praying mantis biting off the head of its mate or a black widow spider. We have different examples of nature in which insects and animals do this. You know, they reject or, or even destroy um, the, the mate. And so Amazons did the same thing. So Theseus, in a feat of heroism or whatever, uh, uh, conquers the Amazons and takes Hippolyta as his wife and has a child by her and she dies uh, shortly after. And so the child that Theseus has by Hippolyta is named 
named Hippolytus, okay, who is the child of, of Theseus and Hippolyta, Hippolyta. And Hippolytus is the prince. He is the rightful heir to Theseus's um, kingdom. You may remember Theseus from Theseus and the Minotaur. He's the rightful heir to Theseus's uh, kingdom. And he's this prince, but he is this prince who is so beautiful you know, and so athletic and so like, you know, everyone's like always in love with Hippolyta, Hippolytus. He's just this beautiful, lovely prince, you know, but he has forsworn anything to do with women. He has for, forsworn sex completely. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on this broadcast, that that to choose celibacy in ancient times and early, Christi early Christianity becomes a badge of honor, but in ancient times and even through the medieval period, to choose celibacy over uh, marriage was seen as something really obscene. It was seen as, as perverse. It was a twist. You were meant to marry and reproduce and have children. You were not meant to, to denounce sex and have nothing to do with the other sex. And so Hippolytus being the only heir to uh, the throne of Theseus, for him to uh, denounce, to reject love altogether and to swear his allegiance to Diana, okay, who is a virgin goddess. She's also the goddess of the hunt. And this is what Hippolytus does all day. He hunts. He goes and he hunts and he collects game and things like this. And he worships Diana and Diana is very happy with him uh, because he is a virgin prince who has given his life uh, to her. And so Aphrodite doesn't like this. Aphrodite doesn't like virginity. <laughs> okay, you always see Aphrodite, you know, going at it with um, with uh, 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 Minerva, with Athena. Okay, because Athena is famously a goddess of virginity, and Aphrodite is famously not. Okay, she's always like getting people, you know, to play hanky panky in in one another's togas and 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 sneaking feels and things like this. And Athena's always like, do do stop with her spear, do do stop. Okay, so so Diana. Diana is of the same thing. She's like, mm -hmm, stay away, Aphrodite. You know, I rule over virgins, you know, and they pledge allegiance to me. And so um, Aphrodite hears Hippolytus. He's very misogynistic. He's he's very, um, you know, I will not love. I will have nothing to do with women. And, you know, uh, women are, 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 are nothing to me. You know, he's very misogynistic. And, um, you know, it, it's fascinating because we think of the Greek society as being very patriarchal um, until you get a figure like Aphrodite, <laughs> who is by no means bowing her knee to patriarchy, okay, and 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 by no means sees women as second-class citizens or anything along these lines. And so this is why men fear Aphrodite, okay. And so Aphrodite... Um, uh, she's she hears Hippolytus boast of how he will never you know sleep with a woman and will not continue his line and and things like this, and so she sees Phaedra who is about Hippolytus's age. She's maybe a few years older than Hippolytus. She uh, Phaedra is Theseus's second wife. Okay, so Aphrodite sees Phaedra, and um, she infects or she causes a passion to grow in Phaedra's heart towards Hippolytus. 
And of course, you know, Hippolytus is striding through the throne room or something like that, wearing just a tunic and, and you know, slender, slender limbs and oiled up, you know, to go hunting. He's he's striding on his sandals through the throne room and Phaedra catches a glance and he looks over her, at her with maybe, you know, a little bit of a scowl and those arrows fly, <laughs> those arrows fly from Hippolytus and they go into Phaedra's longing eyes and they go down into her heart and they infect it and her heart begins to swell and turn purple. Okay, so she looks at him She's full of this longing for him. And with this longing that she feels towards Hippolytus, she also feels this shame. She is Hippolytus's stepmother. She shouldn't be feeling these, these things towards him, this, 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 this lust that she feels towards him. And she denies it. She denies it. And she and she goes into her room. And, and like um, Antiochus, she takes to her bed and her eyes become sunken and she begins to lose weight and she won't eat and she she won't drink it. Everyone's concerned. And the nurse, her personal nurse, of course, asks her, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And she's heavy sighs. And she's like, nothing's wrong. Just leave me alone. Like, leave the curtains closed. I don't want to look at the light of day. I'm a wretched, wretched, wretched creature. She's full of this shame. And anyone, anyone who's been on that side of love in that way, um, can feel this, you know, this extraordinary shame, sometimes because your sexual preferences don't align, or or sometimes it's, you know, someone who's who's very much connected to your best friend or a member of your family. You know, love knows no bounds, you know, it doesn't respect bounds. And so you can feel this, this extraordinary shame for what you feel. Even being in love with someone who's higher in status than you, or or you feel is higher in, in status than you because you're infected with this this love. You can feel this, this shame, you know, and this is the darker side that comes out. Um, and so she feels this shame. She 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 doesn't leave her um her bed and her nurse prods her and asks her and says, you know, what is it? What is it? And finally she confesses is the love that she feels towards Hippolytus. And the nurse is like, oh, not Hippolytus. And she's like, yes. And she's like, the king's son. And she's like, yes. And, and strangely enough, the nurse doesn't worry that it's the king's son. <laughs> like, like, she's got no problem with that. The worry that she has is that it's Hippolytus who has forsworn love altogether. You know, and 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 so and 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 he's he's basically Hippolytus is pretty much what we would call a narcissist nowadays. You know, he's very you know to himself and doesn't give of himself to anyone. And so the nurse gets to machinations. This is what nurses do. The nurse does the same thing in Romeo and Juliet. The nurse gets to machinations, and she um, she decides to go and tell Hippolytus. Um, you know, Phaedra begs her not to, but she says it's this or you're going to die. So she goes and she tells Hippolytus of, of the queen's affections. She tells Hippolytus of the queen's um, lovesickness, really. I mean, that's how she puts it. The queen is terribly in love with you and, and, and she's dying and you need to somehow either release her from this, from this feeling, this longing that she has, or you must consummate Okay, you must do one of the two, because if you don't, the queen will die. Okay, so so and this is the way, and and and, and this was also carried on through courtly love. This is the way that it was seen. Either either the beloved can um, release the person 
you know, from the feeling, like say, our version of it nowadays is, I see you more as a friend than a lover. Okay. I mean, how many times have you heard that? Okay. When you've crushed on someone, I actually don't really have those feelings. I see you as a friend. Well, this is, this is actually a good thing because it's, I mean, it's, not a good thing if you're in love with the person, but it's a good thing because it's the the love, uh, the, not the lover, but the beloved. It is the beloved acknowledging your feelings and releasing you from them. And this is a very important thing. You know, this is a very, very important thing because when the beloved acknowledges the feelings and releases you from them, you're also under an obligation as someone in which your feelings are not going to be reciprocated, you're under an obligation to let those feelings go. Okay, your beloved has released you from them. And so you must honor it in the same way. You must honor it in the same way by letting those feelings go by not harboring them. Okay. And this was seen pretty much as kind of like an absolute Okay, so the beloved, that's the person whom the infections or or who someone is crushing on. The beloved is under an obligation to either release, you know, I do not share those same feelings. I'm sorry, I have respect for you. We're friends, we're really wonderful that way, but I don't share those same feelings for you. There's a respect there, you know, there's a respect for the feeling and for the person on the other side of them there. And this is really the noble thing to do. And so the lover, or the beloved rather, because uh, the beloved, because they haven't made love, the beloved must release from, from the feelings or they must consummate, okay? They must consummate the attraction. That doesn't mean go on and have an affair, but they must consummate the attraction. In other words, to to satiate the fiery passion, you know, to release that person, you know, and, and how many of us have had different incidents in our life where it's like, we were so in love with someone and we finally, you know, sleep with them. And then the morning after it's like, wow, that was it. Oh, okay. Well, you know, maybe it hasn't happened to, but sometimes it can happen. It often happens, but that can happen. Like that was it. Okay. And so, um, and that also is a release of the fires. That's a release from the love sickness. So this is why the nurse goes to Hippolytus. She goes to the nurse and says to him, you must either release Phaedra from this, you know, by, by acknowledging the feelings, you know, and respectfully releasing her from this. Or, or you must sleep with her, not tell the king, and get it out of your system. Get it out of her system. Help her get it out of her system so that she can go back to her, her, her normal life, okay? This is how Aphrodite rolls, okay? So um, Hippolytus. Hippolytus is insulted by this. You know, he looks at the nurse and he's like, What? You know, and and she and she re, re, she uh, repeats this. You know, and he says basically, I don't think I've heard anything more disgusting in my life. And of course, the nurse has positioned Phaedra to overhear. You know, the nurse goes and pleads her case to Hippolytus, and Phaedra's like, you know, in one of those closets. Everyone's always in a closet, like Hamlet, like listening to what's going on. Okay, so Phaedra's like, you know, in a closet or or, or a secreted place where she can hear what's going on. And Hippolytus vents, you know, expresses his complete disgust with this idea, disgust that she should have these feelings, disgust that he's supposed to release her from this, disgust that the only other uh, other alternative is to sleep with her. It's revolting. 
to him. And then he says, this begins like a two to three, like misogynistic rant. I mean, two to three pages. I mean, uh, Hippolytus's reaction and monologue goes on forever in the play. But basically, you know, th this is the salient point. He, he says, he begins his speech, women, this coin which men find counterfeit. Why, why, Lord Zeus, did you put them in the world? in the light of the sun. If you were so determined, if you were so determined to breed the race of man, the source of it should not have been women. Ugh. Okay, so he's just, you know, and then he goes on for like two to three pages in the play about all this. And Fedra is hearing this. She is so, she is so ashamed. She is so hurt. She is so stricken. She is so, she feels so violated by, by what she hears. And she can't believe that she told the nurse this and that the nurse went and told him this. And, and she's just so horrified. And she sinks into a crumpled mess of, tears and shame and horror where she just cannot you know and of course he like leaves the room he doesn't even know the effect he's had and the nurse comes back knowing full well that she had heard and the nurse had really in in her own simple way tried to relieve her uh, uh phaedra of the of this cursed feeling and phaedra is just so horrified she's like in a ball rolled up with this and she and she 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 it's going to kill herself. That's exactly what she's going to do. And she's going to, to, um, she's going to, uh, uh, kill herself. I think she like stabs herself or she hangs herself or something along those lines. Um, uh, hangs herself. Uh, she, you know, hangs herself in, in shame and, and feeling criminal and, and all of these horrible things. But, but, In her ring, in her marriage ring, she has inscribed a note saying that Hippolytus raped her. She puts it in her ring so that when her corpse is discovered, when Theseus returns, and he is he is horrified by this vision of his wife. Hippolytus is out driving a chariot or hunting or something like this. He could care less. You know, he is so horrified by this, you know, that he 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 sees this this note, this little slip of papyrus or something tucked in her ring, and he takes it out and he reads it. And he reads this accusation of rape. And he is so full of fury that he immediately curses his son, Hippolytus, who happens to be driving chariots along the seashore. And there is a crack of thunder. There is a bulging of, of the waves. There is this, this uh, I don't know, it's kind of like a little earthquake. It's like an earthquake with a hurricane, a gusting of winds. The horses are frightened. They rear up and they, they, they go back the way that they're going. And he's driving very fast. And the chariot is thrown over the cliff. And the chariot goes flying over the cliff and, and crashes on the rocks. And Hippolytus is killed. This is a very dark version of the story of the other story of Antiochus that we just heard. But it also comes from the same place. Okay. I mean, 
when you walk it back a bit, you know, like, okay, that accusation of rape was a little extreme and, you know, the two to three page monologue, you walk it back a little bit, but, but if you really look at, I mean, it's a Greek tragedy, what do you want from your life? But anyway, when you walk it back a bit and really sort of examine what's going under there, where did Hippolytus go wrong? He went wrong by not respecting the feelings that someone had had, you know, he he went wrong by shaming her, you know, and 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 it's not just that he had shamed her without him knowing it; she was overhearing, but shaming her, shaming love, you know, and this is kind of Aphrodite's warning to those people who ghost, to those people who delight in leading someone on. To those people who go and uh, and 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 show disdain for the respect of love, for the respect of sexual attraction, for people who show disdain for it, you know, who who reject it either because I want nothing to do with this, um, you know, uh, or or who laugh, you know, who 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 humiliate people sexually or humiliate people in amour who humiliate people romantically. This is Venus's warning to those people. Don't. Not a good idea. Okay? You may not suffer in that moment. You may not even uh, uh, suffer a week or a year or whatever later. But what happens? What happens is that your heart suffers. Maybe it hardens. Maybe you turn around and fall in love with someone who treats you with the same kind of disdain. Maybe you become a callous person. Maybe you become a predatory person. Maybe you're a narcissist. You know, this is all anti-Aphrodite. This is all anti-Venus. You know, Venus can infect with a passion. Okay, when you feel that love for someone, and this isn't like, you know, I love my kitty, or, you know, like, I love my dog, or like, you know, we have a great friendship. No, this isn't, you know, this is like, from romantic passion. Okay, this can be dangerous and treacherous waters where you hold the heart. And according to Aphrodite's point of view, the life of another person in your hands. Okay. And because you hold someone else's heart, the life of that person in your hands, you have a duty. You have a duty either to reciprocate, if that's what's going on, or to release the person, to release the person from that. And then that person has a duty to you, if you're the one who's releasing them from it, that person has a duty to you to let go, you know, and this is what Venus, Venus insists upon, you know, and this kind of like life and death, you know, quality. I mean, whenever you're dealing with Pluto, whenever a planet is dealing with Pluto, whether it's the sun, the moon, Mars, Jupiter, Uranus, whenever a planet is dealing with Pluto, you're playing for life and death stakes. Okay. And so that's why in this um, second to the last time that Venus, uh, she's right now in Virgo, that Venus will be forming a trying to Pluto in Capricorn, 
which is a very underworld type of placement, you know, which is very much talking about things in terms of life and death, of reward or ruin, okay? This is something that it's very important for you to keep in mind when dealing with the love and the affections of yourself and others. Hi there. I'm Amy Escobar, a producer of the Horoscope Highlight Show with Christopher Renstrom. Thanks for tuning in to the Astrology Hub Podcast Network. If you love the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, review, and share it. And if you don't know how to do that, here's how you can leave a review in Apple Podcasts on iPhone. Make sure you're on the landing page for the Astrology Hub Podcast and not an individual episode. Scroll down to the bottom until you reach ratings and reviews. Click one of the five stars under tap to rate to leave a rating. And under the most recent review, tap the write a review button. And if you're on another device, just find out how to leave a review on whatever podcast player you use. Then share what you love about the show or how it helps you navigate your life. We'd love to hear your stories. And by doing this, you make it possible to make shows like Horoscope Highlights happen every week. Thank you again for tuning in, for being a part of our community, and for making astrology a part of your life.